1: Stocks for beginners.
2: For the last decade or so, it's been a lot of escalating things upwards. And there hasn't been a whole lot of downward volatility that lasts for too long. Through normal market cycles, you know, as we saw temporarily over a couple months last year, things can go down in a hurry. And if you get emotionally worried and sell out or go into cash at those times, that can really, really hurt your long-term returns. But if you're ready to take advantage of it, you know, it can really help your returns.
1: Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello, where we try to avoid trifling conversation. My guest today is a lover of a good quote, from which uh, that previous sentence came from Joe Costa, founder and portfolio manager at Surface Investments, Charlotte, North Carolina, and editor of the Value Investing World blogger newsletter. Hello, Joe. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Before we look at the origin of the name Sorfus, from which that uh, quote previously came from, tell us about the two strategies that Sorfus offers. I think they're worth discussing as a way for investing beginners to reflect on their own approach to markets.
2: All right. Thanks. Uh, Our two strategies are really for two different types of investors. Uh, The first is a diversified strategy. This is for clients that have, you know, really all or a significant part of their investable assets with us. And they've spent years, decades, and lifetimes building up their nest eggs and trust us to diversify widely for them. And we really add our value for those clients through service, financial tax planning, when appropriate, and managing the emotional ups and downs that often come with investing so that they don't have to. Uh, Our other strategy is aimed more for clients that want to use us as a small part of their overall portfolios. So they want their investment with us to be different from the other parts of their investment portfolio. So this strategy is concentrated, you know, kind of focused on six to 12 best ideas, you know, and invest in companies of all sizes, including micro cap stocks. In my experience, great management teams find smart things to do with capital that it's hard to put in a model when you go in, or some investments are more capital cycle type investments. So these would kind of be kind of the two big books on this subject would be capital account and capital returns. It's a great overview of this type of investing, but it's more, you got the headwinds of a certain industry tailwinds behind you where you might have a lot of players in an industry do well just because an industry is, you know, the supply demand dynamics are off. And so everybody kind of does well. And so you get sort of your return from that kind of tailwind. But Could you
1: just explain that a little bit more about um, that investing approach and what what's the main thrust of that book that you were mentioning?
2: Yeah, so capital returns and capital account, I think they were based off the letters of Marathon Asset Management. So it's really, you have an industry set up where it's more focused on supply than demand. Have
1: you got an example, like a solid example of a company that um, you've invested in using this approach and the story behind that capital change?
2: Well, probably the best examples are the ones that they talk about. So in the internet bubble, you had all this fibre that was laid so all this capital was coming in, everybody was laying fiber, you know, this all the telecoms were just spending money, being able to raise money to lay more and more fiber down. And then when the bust happened, all right, you have all this fibers in the ground. Basically this whole infrastructure was built for internet businesses, but every all the internet business, all the technology stocks had all gotten killed. So I mean Marathon's case, they had talked in the book about Amazon pretty early of just being one of the leader in the space that's going to take advantage of all this infrastructure that's already been built. Amazon didn't have to build all that infrastructure. In that case, you, you even had all the whole credit card infrastructure, and everything that was already in place well before that as well. So they could build their whole business on top of this whole infrastructure that they didn't have to spend the money on. So that's one example. Obviously, you want to get the upside as well, but it helps you avoid the so-called value traps in the world too. So when you're seeing home builders in the US, well, probably around the world, but especially in the US, is what I'm familiar with leading up to 05, 06. A lot of these housing related stocks just looked, all right, you're trading at 7, 8, 10, 12 times earnings. They kind of looked very inexpensive. If you understood a capital cycle approach, you could kind of sidestep that bubble and avoid it. I think that was the book Capital Returns We've talked a little bit about that one. Whereas, you know, if you were just focused on PE or something like that, you might have got into something thinking you were buying a cheap stock when in reality you were way overpaying for a normal level of profits.
1: You were talking previously about that multiple that um, it was uh, about seven or eight times PE. Can you explain to a beginner what that um, actually means?
2: Yeah, so I think for beginners, one of the most important aspects of investing and what I like to tell when I talk to college students and things is stocks are ownerships businesses. So, you know, I just like to use a simple example. If you go in to start a car wash with your buddy, and the two of you go in 50-50 partners, you each own 50%. Whereas if you own you know, a stock, you're, you know, maybe it's a million shares, a billion shares, whatever, outstanding. But you're still an owner of that business, just as you were of a 50-50 joint venture in a car wash. And so you really want to view your ownership as a small stake of that whole company. So a PE ratio is just say if I own my car wash and it makes $1 a share and I own half, I'm making $0.50 cents a share. So what's that 50 cents worth? What would you sell it to me for? So if somebody came and offered me say $5 per share for that business, well, it's making 50 cents a year. So he's offering me $5 for my share. You know That's a 10% yield. Well, is a 10% return good? Can I do something else better with that money? So in that case, the PE would be 10. So the price he's offered me is $5. My earnings are 50 cents. He's offered me 10 times that number. So it's a way to put a value, but more importantly, it helps you determine what's a fair price for your business, and valuation is a hard topic, and you know the range of values can be very, very wide. But you know how I like to view it is when I'm investing in a stock is all right. The company's making 10 million a year. If it's trading at a 10 P/E, that's a hundred million dollar valuation, but that's a 10 percent yield for me. So if I own this business and I'm right that this is going to make 10 million dollars, that basically means I'm earning 10 percent on money. So if I put it in the bank I right now, earn nothing or half a percent. Whereas if I own this business, I'm making 10% of my money. Now, the question is, how sure am I in that I'm right about that earning power? And is it likely to grow or shrink? If it's likely to grow, my 10% yield is just going to get better and better and better. Whereas if I'm wrong, or it's a shrinking business, then maybe that's not the best place for my money. So that's probably a long-winded way to say (laughs) the most important topic, I think, when new investors are looking at businesses view it as a entire business that you're buying a share of. And then, all right, what am I paying for that business? And PE ratio is just a way of expressing that.
1: Do you speak with uh, college students a lot?
2: Um, A few times a year. So I went to Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina and I'm on the finance advisory board there, as well as the board of the Wall Fellows program, which is a business program at the school. I'm always happy to call and talk to students and speak with them when they call and, and usually go there at least once a year.
1: What are some of the questions that they ask you?
2: Similar to how we were just talking, you know, they just kind of want a general understanding. I think college textbooks, especially, and I was very lucky when I was there to have a professor who sort of taught the value investing. And we had Heckstrom's book on Buffett. The Essential Buffett was one of our class reading materials. So that was my initial exposure. And I appreciated that a lot. But I think a lot of what you read in the textbook isn't necessarily how things work in the real world. You know, it's not doing formulas to figure out what returns... Are going to be. But it gets
1: onto a too abstract, intellectual, theoretical level, does it, at university rather than the practicalities?
2: Yeah. And I think you don't realize there's businesses behind those stocks, right? You think it's much more mathematical than sort of that real world. There's people on the ground trying to make money and grow a business, and there's competitors coming in trying to take that business away. And so I sort of encourage people, especially students, you know, pick one small business that's easy to understand, that maybe you like, and, uh, you know, read the financial statements If you're inclined, go try to talk to management and really get to understand the business so that you can see, uh, you know, investing is really about investing in these people and these employees and these management teams.
1: Yeah, I've had it in another interview where someone said it's like having all of these people working on your behalf when you own stock in a company.
2: Yeah, that's true. As Charlie Munger likes to say, it's not supposed to be easy. It's a hard business to find great companies early at the right price, but if you do, you can just sort of sit back and wait, and uh, all these people work for you, and you can just hold your shares, not pay taxes until you have to sell, and and uh, that's a good situation to be in if you can find the right businesses, that's for sure.
1: And um, with one of your portfolios being quite concentrated, there's not many stocks and companies in that portfolio there's going to be more volatility. Can you just give us a little bit of an explanation of what volatility is and how one
2: should approach it? Yeah. So volatility, of course, a lot of people think volatility is risk, but, you know, volatility is really only risk if it can take you out of the game. So usually that only happens if you're using leverage. And so you get a margin call or something, or if you're not emotionally ready for that volatility, but, you know, don't use leverage you can emotionally handle the up and downs then you know volatility is really opportunity you know in our concentrated strategy we're willing to carry a lot of cash we don't have enough good ideas so that volatility we always have a list of companies we're following and love to buy them at the right price and if volatility gives us that right price great but even in our strategies where we're very very diversified for people you know that volatility can make a huge difference in how we can add value because Again, we have to make sure going in that everyone's positioned the right way. They're not taking more risks than they like. But you know that volatility means we can potentially create some tax losses that can offset other income, and we can potentially rebalance some things. Especially if they have cash coming in regularly, if they're still contributing to their accounts, that volatility basically increases our future internal rate of return by being able to put money to work during those volatile times at higher prices. So the key is having yourself set up structurally, either emotionally or you know, the way you're managing money to be able to take advantage of that volatility and not let it take you out of the game. So,
1: volatility is that just simply the price of the stock going up and down on a daily basis or a weekly basis?
2: Yep, just general ups and downs. And you know, as the saying goes, you know, a lot of times the market likes to take the escalator up and the elevator down, and that's often how it works. We saw some volatility, obviously, in March of last year, but, you know, for the last decade or so, it's been a lot of escalating things upwards. And there hasn't been a whole lot of downward volatility that lasts for too long through normal market cycles, you know, as we saw temporarily over a couple months last year. Things can go down in a hurry. And if you get emotionally worried and sell out or go into cash at those times, that can really, really hurt your long-term returns. But if you're ready to take advantage of it, uh, you know, it can really help your returns.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
1: How important is portfolio weighting? And what is portfolio weighting first? I mean, let's just discuss that just briefly. But I guess it's like the number of different stocks and how you arrange them in a portfolio. Is that the case?
2: Yep. So yeah, portfolio weighting will be kind of like the percent of a certain holding in your portfolio. So for example, if you had 10 stocks in your portfolio and they were all equally weighted, each one would be a 10% portfolio weighting. Most mutual funds or ETFs or things like that will have you know over hundred stacks they really have a stock that'll be more than one or two percent whereas if you're a you know concentrated manager you might have certain stacks that are five, ten, fifteen, 15 maybe even twenty percent of your portfolio for your best biggest position sizes so it certainly has a major influence on your overall outcomes both good and bad you know the good decisions get amplified as do the bad so if your goal is to earn the highest returns over time you know then you probably want to run a concentrated portfolio but that can also lead to punishing losses if you're wrong. So if your goal is to just earn decent returns and or average returns and avoid the worst outcomes, you know, then you'd want smaller position sizes, so smaller portfolio weightings per position and more diversification. So it really depends on the person and the situation, whether or not you want your portfolio weightings to be big for each position or if you wanna have smaller portfolio weightings and thus more diversification.
1: Let's get on to the name Sorfus and where the name for Sorfus Investments came from.
2: Right. So I took the name from Benjamin Franklin. I'm a big fan of. Way back when I was trying to memorize his 13 virtues, I noticed that you know the first letter of virtues two through seven spelled the word Sorfus, which was both unique and also had the benefit that the domain name was available. So I saved the domain name and figured that uh, if I ever decided to launch my own firm, that would be the, the name I use. So. When I launched the uh, investment advisory business in in 2019, that's what I went with.
1: A lot of people talk about Charlie Munger or Warren Buffett or Peter Lynch as being the you know the gurus of investing, but not many people would look at Benjamin Franklin as being one of the gurus of investing. So you think there's lessons to be learned from um, his virtues?
2: Oh, I think so. In the virtues, you know, it's amazing what he wrote and said. One, how ahead of his time he was, not just on business and investing type things, but also you know, in general, the inventions he made and everything else, but um, his understanding of psychology, but also, yes, his thrift and the simple things it takes to be successful and a way of communicating them them well. I think certainly he's somebody to model yourself after. And he's got a little book called The Way to Wealth, which you can Google and find free online or or buy a short version on Amazon or something, which is great. And, you know, certainly poor Richard's Almanac is full of aphorisms that are still plenty, plenty relevant today.
1: So tell us about one or two that maybe really mean something to you.
2: Yeah, so, you know, all of them are great. And the ones I named my firm after, uh, you know, certainly the introvert in me loves the silence virtue. But, you know, joking aside, there, there are so many great conversations to have in this world that, you know, it's important to really not get lost talking about things that you really don't want to talk about or are interested in.
1: Like we were saying about the trifling conversation to avoid small talk, I guess, is it's important to talk about things of importance. Is that uh, the case?
2: Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it's not that you can't have fun conversations, those are fine too, especially if they're with people you care about and you want to communicate and keep a relationship with. But completely randomly, a lot of you know, the major directions in my life have been made by talking to people who were so interesting to talk to that I learned something I didn't know which led me down another rabbit hole and I got to learn something else, which led me somewhere else. And so, you know, I think a lot of people go through life just trying to talk and trying to, whether it's sell themselves or sell something else, whereas the best conversations are often, you know, just trying to be around people you don't know where they're going to go, but they're people who you share an interest or, you know, they have an experience that they're willing to talk about because they want to share it as well. So, yeah, so spending time avoiding the trifling conversations and trying to, have meaningful ones. I think you just never know where one of those conversations will lead. And
1: frugality, the F in is frugality. I think a lot of people these days don't really understand or want to be involved with being frugal.
2: Yeah, I think so. And you know, getting back to talking to students, you know, a lot of what I like to tell them is so again, saving is great, but it's not just, you know, to earn financial independence when you're old. If you're saving well now, you're living below your means, that also gives you career independence. It gives you life independence. You know, not everybody can find the perfect job coming out of college, but if you're living well below your means and the right job comes up, but hey, maybe you got to travel to the other side of the country, or maybe you got to take a pay cut or something like that, but it's the perfect job or somebody where you can actually have a mentor who can bring you along. Well, you know, if you have higher expenses and you're relying on a salary, or you can't afford to just pack up and move in a weekend, then you don't have that flexibility. So frugality is... You know, good for the obvious things of the rainy day fund, especially starting early, if you can start investing early, that makes a big difference as Einstein said, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. If you start early, investing early, that has a huge, huge difference on when you get older and in a retirement age, but it also going to have a big difference on your career path just because you have that independence
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, because when you're young, having the flexibility is really important, because that's when the changes in your life that occur can have such an influence, and if you're tied to some kind of debt or credit card, it's going to be very difficult for you to take up those opportunities, as you say.
2: I think so, and there's a difference between frugality and cheapness. So frugality is trying to not waste money, but cheap might not be spending money on anything, you know, some of my best friends have been, you know, just going to, say, the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting or a very close friend and mentor in my life came from just randomly sitting next to the right person at a Wesco annual meeting back in 2006. You know, so going to those things costs money. You know, if you somebody was cheap, maybe they would say, I'm not spending money on anything. Whereas if you're frugal, you're not wasting it, but you're spending it going to the right areas to try to expose yourself to the right people as Nassim Taleb likes to call those, positive black swans. So spending money to get yourself in those kind of situations where you may not know what's going to happen, but one, if nothing else, you're going to learn something, and two, you could potentially meet people that, you know, be friends with for life. Those, I think, are good expenses and not at odds with a, a frugal life.
1: I like the I in uh, surface Industry, lose no time, be always employed in something useful, cut off all unnecessary actions. <laughs> that's another one that's difficult to do in this uh, day and age of distractions and constant distractions
2: well yeah definitely yeah so industry is really about working hard and you know whether it takes 10,000 hours or a little more a little less whatever the number is to get good at something it takes a while and if you're getting good at something you can add value to people and especially in the investing business we all want to be you know Warren Buffett overnight and or whoever pick your favorite investor but it takes time it takes experience and so you just gotta put in the time, you gotta put in the effort and you know, I think it was uh I think it was Charlie Munger's two thousand and seven commencement speech at USC, I believe. You know, he stressed the importance of hard work, reliability, and you know, that was really getting at Ben Franklin. Industry in this case, one of Franklin's other virtues is, you know, resolution, which is really about being reliable. And I've certainly both well, through my own experience as well as not wanting to argue with Franklin and Munger, certainly putting in the time and effort to get good at something and develop some expertise, is uh, it just takes time, it takes work.
1: And these are often seen as old-fashioned ideas these days, but they're kind of universal and timeless, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think today, especially with just the access to information and the stories you hear about the survivorship bias, basically, you hear the stories of people who got here so fast or the lucky stories all rise to the top of the news articles, but... You know, these old fashioned ideas about hard work, being reliable, you know, doing things, sort of that long term mindset. I think that's really what's sustainable. And, you know, if almost anybody can do these things and be successful, again, different levels of success, but if you're doing the right things over a long period of time, it's, you know, it's kind of hard not to be successful if you do it for long enough. But those certainly aren't the stories you you see that get the headlines.
1: It's interesting because uh, people often talk about Benjamins as a symbol for money, power, and greed, but it sure doesn't sound like that.
2: No, I don't think so. Obviously, I'm biased since I like him as much as I do, but uh, I learned something new almost every time I read, whether it's his autobiography or Walter Isaacson's biography, or if you really want the details, there's one from Carl Van Doren that came out quite a long time ago, but it was very, very detailed. But yeah, I think it's all very relevant to today. And you know, a lot of his life and his writings, especially his autobiography, was to leave a good record and good instruction for future generations. So His face on the $100 bill maybe gives him that symbol for money and and greed, but uh, he probably would be uh, just as happy to be on the penny than the $100 bill.
1: (laughs) So what's the role of skepticism in investing?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think skepticism is important because, you know, it's easy to be sold by someone with a vested interest. Somebody's always trying to sell you something, but you don't want to just be skeptical for the sake of being skeptical, and you don't want to just be skeptical of everything new. Almost all skepticism has some element of truth on the other side. You know, I mean, some of the truly all time great investments had really smart, you know, really well known skeptics at the time. People like Paul Krugman, for example, you know, very well known economist, the guy who should understand economics very well and does, uh, I'm sure, but he pretty much said the internet was going to be a fleeting passing fad. So, you know, if you would have just listened to him in the you know, late 90s, or maybe mid 90s, whenever he had talked about the internet being a passing fad, you know, you would have missed one of the all time great understandings of how the world was going to change over the next 20 to 25 years, whether it was Amazon or Apple had major skeptics at the time, you know, even when they were at their lows, you know, Apple had a very popular professor who came out and said, you know, when they were launching the iPod and things were growing, you know, this business is dead, this is going nowhere, jobs has failed. And yet Apple's been, you know, the all-time great investment since, you know, that time back in 03, 04, 05, whenever it was to today. And so my advice is it's good to be skeptical in some extent because people are going to try to sell you things. They have an interest in selling you things, an interest in promoting things, which you can always see in, you know, sell-side analysts uh, buy versus sell recommendations. But you have to be willing to think for yourself. So sometimes it takes years to learn something. If there's something you think could be important, even if there's skeptics, you know, just say, I'm not going to have an opinion, but I'm going to learn about it. Learn both sides and form your own opinion. And you can decide for yourself once you take the time to understand it well.
1: Sorry, this is a question off the record here. But do you have a a solid example of a company that um, you've been skeptical about, but it's worked out?
2: Yeah well, back to Amazon to use one example where I think I had a couple of great letters and presentations from people who had laid out sort of the case from Amazon, you know, the positive network dynamics, you know, that positive flywheel of how things were going to work. You know, I'd seen the writings back in 08, 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, but I always wanted a better price. So I was skeptical that it was going to play out as well and as quickly, even though every year the numbers were sort of justifying that was going to work. And certainly you had models like Costco that Amazon was sort of built off of, you know, this whole scale economic shared model where as they get bigger, they share the pricing they get from suppliers, they share that with customers, which means customers buy more. So I think the model was there. I think I was just skeptical that it was worth paying at the time what seemed like a higher price because I had to assume what margins would be down the road, but yet that certainly proved to be a mistake as uh, as that flywheel was not only very real but would end up accelerating once AWS and everything else was put on top of it so yeah you
1: mentioned network effects when you were talking then? Um, I always like to talk about some particular piece of jargon and have it explained for beginners as well, because this is something I've been hearing a lot about lately, is you want, you want to be investing in business that has a network effect. Can you just quickly explain what that is, please?
2: Yes. Yeah, so a network effect is probably one of the more powerful things to try to understand. So you know, the example people like to use is a telephone. When the telephone is invented, if there's only one telephone in the world, it's not very valuable because you have nobody to call. So suddenly, if there's two people with a telephone, well, now your telephone has value because you can call one person. You know, as 100 people get a telephone, well, now it's that much more valuable. Anytime somebody increases, in this case, gets a telephone, the whole network becomes kind of exponentially more valuable because it's not just that you can now call 99 people instead of one. It's that all those other people can now also call each other. So the network just keeps getting more and more valuable for each individual that enters the network. And so... That works with businesses too, where, you know, as Amazon, to use them again as an example, as they were building out this network, so people were buying on Amazon, it was powerful. But then as more and more people started buying on Amazon, well, then more and more people selling stuff wanted to sell on Amazon, which then meant there were more things to buy. So more people came on and then just sort of built and built and built. So it's just where if that loop gets going, where as more people come on, it gets more valuable to other people, then Growth can really accelerate and, you know, it's kind of hard to predict. It doesn't always show up in the numbers. So in the investing business, you know, you really got to understand what's going on underneath that network is happening.
1: And it also prevents competitors coming in as well. The other example I've heard in network effects companies, are Visa and MasterCard, for example.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, it's very hard to displace when you have that kind of competitive advantage. When a network gets going at some point it sort of grows in itself so you don't have to spend money on marketing all this it just keeps getting bigger and bigger whereas if somebody else wants to go and create a new network so we can use the amazon as the example if you wanted to try to compete with amazon you have to create something better for people to buy on amazon which means the things they want to find not only have to be better selection but have to be a better price so it's very very hard to displace a company where a network effect is in place very hard to build but if you get one especially if you can identify it fairly early so you get in at a reasonable price. Buying and holding through uh, as it develops and gets stronger is a very, very successful way to compound your capital at a high rate of turn.
1: Joe, tell us about uh, Sorfus and where we can get in contact with you and, uh, and your blog as well on Substack, I believe.
2: Uh, yep. So the, the blog, which has turned into the Substack newsletter, is Value Investing World. So uh, it's valueinvestingworld.substack.com. My website is swarfis.com, S O R F I S. And uh, yeah, my email address is on the website. Yeah, if people want to reach out, feel free to send me an email or reach out on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at JT Coster, so you can find me pretty easily. Jack Costa, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Phil.
0: Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. And thank you for listening
1: to my podcast.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?